Wow, it is truly an understatement to say that the last 18 months have been tough. But 2021 has been especially challenging for me. If 2020 was defined by COVID, then 2021 has been defined by a constant barrage of controversy everywhere I look. Sometimes it seems like our culture is degrading into chaos, and it's tough to watch, especially as a mom trying to raise three kids in the midst of it. Toxic ideas, many of which are in opposition to biblical truth, seem to be adopted as undeniable fact almost as quickly as they are proposed. The image I associate with 2021 is one of trying to remain on my feet and keep my balance while standing on, on quicksand. The prayer that's on repeat in my heart is, Lord, how am I supposed to think about this? How am I supposed to live faithfully in our ever-shifting culture? And how can I teach my children to be salt and light in today's world when I can't seem to find that balance for myself? In light of Jude's letter, I find myself crying out to God to know how to contend for my faith well in today's world. Have you also been feeling this way? Last week, we began looking at Jude verses 3 and 4, in which he explains his purpose for writing. In verse 3, he begins by saying that he had originally intended to write to this beloved group of Christians to talk about their shared salvation, but something had happened that made him abruptly change direction. The letter he ended up writing them is an urgent plea for his readers to contend for their faith. Last week, in Jackie Hill Perry's video, she explained that the word contend that Jude uses would have conjured up images of two men wrestling with each other and fighting it out in a physical battle. Likewise, she explained that Jude is urging his readers, and therefore us today, to fight for our faith. She asked, what does Jude mean by faith? And then went on to define it for us as the doctrines and the truth of the gospel. This is what Jude is calling believers to fight for. Friends, 2021 has been overwhelming, exhausting, and anxiety-inducing. It's been like one long wrestling match. However, the Holy Spirit has recently helped me to see something that has brought me some peace and comfort. He's shown me that contending for the faith doesn't always have to look like hand-to-hand -hand combat. While we are sometimes called to stand our ground and fight to defend the truth, there are other times when contending for the faith calls for more peaceful tactics. To bring a little clarity and hopefully a bit of peace, I'd like to break this down and suggest that there are three major fronts on which we are called to contend for our faith. One, when engaging the secular world. Two, when confronting false teachers. And three, when maintaining the unity within the body of Christ. So we'll start with contending with the secular world. Several years ago, my husband and I were hosting a friend of ours from out of town, a non-believer friend of ours named Gail and her son. And my husband, Mike, was driving them around and showing them the sights. And as they were driving down Randall Road in Batavia, they passed by Chick-fil-A. And my husband conversationally asked if Gail and her son ever eat there. And Gail, who's never shy with her opinions, 
snapped back at him that she would never set foot inside the door of such a hateful organization. And with that, the discussion abruptly ended. Later, my husband told me the story, and all I could think was, huh, Chick-fil-A, hateful? Aren't they the company that donate millions of dollars every year to charitable causes and are known to be the first on the scene to bring food to people in disasters and the first responders? And aren't they the one, in fact, that very restaurant that at the time had a sign out front offering free breakfast to anyone who needed it every Tuesday morning? These are the people that she was calling hateful? Now, of course, I know the answer to why she said that. She was judging them based on their conservative stance on same-sex marriage. But Gail's response troubled me deeply because of how quickly she judged them as hateful just because they adhere to the Bible as their source of truth. And I hate to admit it, but I have spent an embarrassing amount of time over the past few years replaying that short conversation in my head. I wasn't even there for it. But I keep wrestling with, if I had been there, what would I have said? What argument would I have used to defend the honor of a company that I respected for its unwavering devotion to Christian principles? The answer finally came to me earlier this year, and that's it, this, no amount of arguing on my part, would have made a bit of difference because Gail and I simply don't view the world through the same lenses. As a Christian, I admire and respect Chick-fil-A's willingness to honor God, even when it makes them unpopular and possibly costs them business. But to Gail, as a non-believer, this is exactly what makes Chick-fil-A seem narrow-minded and judgmental. Now, I tell this story because it is a small example of the way that much of the secular world interprets the Christian worldview. They see us as narrow-minded, judgmental, and yes, sometimes even hateful. Do you feel that in our culture right now? Now, lots could be said about this. I could talk all day about the gap in perception between Christianity and the secular world and the things that make it challenging to bridge that gap. But I don't have the hours that it I would need to do this justice. So I'll try to sum it up with a brief example. Imagine this. Imagine that Gail and I are citizens of two different kingdoms. Gail is a citizen of the earthly kingdom or the secular world. And in her kingdom, there is no king. Everyone is their own ruler. People are told that they can make their own rules and define for themselves what truth is. They are encouraged to do what makes them happy or feel fulfilled because life is short and you only go around once. And from this perspective, Christianity is problematic because it appears to impose some kind of imperial rule on people to limit their choices and to tell them what to do. And being told what to do is just not very popular in the secular world. But friends, you and I are citizens of a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. In our kingdom, we do have a king, and his name is Jesus. We know Jesus as a loving king who is infinitely greater than even the greatest among us. Our king is just and merciful, and his love for us is perfect. We trust that he has a plan for our lives that is so much better than any plan that we can have for ourselves. Therefore, we gladly follow him and submit to his authority. And when we do, we find freedom, peace, grace, mercy, and love beyond anything that the secular world has to offer. 
Nobody is forcing us to live in this kingdom under the rule of our king. We are here by choice because we know that his way is better than our own. So based on this image, can you see why using Christian doctrine to argue with the secular world doesn't work? First of all, there's a language barrier. The secular world doesn't know the Lord or his word. So beating them over the heads with our Bibles doesn't do any good. It often makes things worse and can cause damage. As believers, we are ambassadors for our king and for our kingdom. And our role as ambassadors is to represent our king well and to invite others into our kingdom. Going back to Jude 4, what does it look like to contend for our faith with the secular world? Well, it looks a lot like diplomacy. It means introducing the non-believer to the gospel by showing them what it looks like to live life under the authority, grace, forgiveness, and love of Jesus. And how can we do this well? Well, we live in a cancel culture that is pretty toxic and unforgiving. Therefore, we must use a much different Christ-centered approach to engaging with the non-believers in our lives. This is best done through relationship, through listening well, through seeking the other's well-being ahead of our own, and not through argument or lecture. It requires patience, humility, prayer, and the willingness to walk with the non-believer and let them see what a life transformed by the love of Christ looks like. We also need, friends, to humbly remember that it is ultimately the role of the Holy Spirit to convict a person's heart. And this will happen in God's timing, not in ours. We just need to be willing to demonstrate the love of Jesus and to leave the rest to God. Remember that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Note that it doesn't say, For God so loved the church that he gave his, his one and only Son, but rather that God so loved the world. We already live in the blessed reality of the second part of this verse, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, it is our duty and our joy to share Jesus with the secular world so that they too may have the opportunity to believe in him and receive eternal life. So switching gears, let's talk about contending with false teachers. When Jude wrote this letter, he wasn't talking about the scenario I just described, uh, which is contending with people who don't know Jesus. He was talking about a much different situation. Looking at verse 4, it reads, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Now, Jackie did a good job describing these people in last week's video. She called them people whose words sound holy and righteous, but who are living as if Jesus is not the Lord of their life. These are people who know God's word, but are twisting it into something lesser in order to fit their own agendas. Rather than taking up their cross and following Jesus, theirs is more of a having your cake and eating it too kind of Christianity. I call it all the grace with none of the sanctification. Jude will demonstrate throughout his letter that false teachers 
are nothing new and have been around since the beginning of God's story. And throughout the study, we will be exploring how to identify and contend with false teachers, so I don't want to dwell here too long. However, I do want to take a few minutes to look at this from a wider view and to talk about not just false teachers as individuals, but systematic false teaching or bad theology that is alive and well in our culture. Just as false teachers have been around since the beginning of time, distorted ideas about God that work their way into culture are nothing new. For example, have you ever encountered any of these arguments? Be honest. One, the Bible is ancient and not relevant to our modern world, so we can pick and choose the parts that we find authoritative. Or, how about this one, hell isn't real because wrath and judgment are inconsistent with God's loving nature. Or maybe this one, the Bible was written by humans and is filled with errors, so we need to take it with a grain of salt. Or maybe this one, God didn't literally make his son die on the cross as punishment for our sins. That would be cosmic child abuse. Rather, Jesus' death and resurrection are metaphors for what it means to be converted and born again. Do any of those sound familiar? Can you spot the half-truths in these statements? I find it fascinating to study and learn about how the early church came together and worked very hard to identify and weed out heresies, which are simply teachings that are inconsistent with scripture. But it's funny, these ancient heresies never completely went away. They have been recycled, rebranded, and reintroduced time and time again over the centuries. As it says in Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So what do these recycled false teachings look like today? Well, they look like so-called progressive Christianity, which teaches things like what I just mentioned and more. It can look like universal Unitarianism, which teaches that all roads lead to heaven, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, etc. They're just all different ways of seeking the same God. It sounds loving and accepting and vaguely Christian, but it directly contradicts Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it looks like any version of the gospel that has been watered down to make it more palatable for the culture, like having your cake and eating it too. The truth is that we are all sinners who deserve eternal damnation and would receive it too, if not for the undeserved grace and mercy of God. And any teaching that stops short of that is a false teaching. So what does it look like to contend for our faith against false teachings? Well, if my first example looked like diplomacy, then this situation looks more like spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The enemy has been trying to get mankind to believe lies about God since the Garden of Eden, as Jude will go on to illustrate in his letter. So contending for the doctrines and the truth of the gospel requires 
several important things. It requires that we know the truth of the gospel by staying engaged in the word of God so that we, when we encounter false teachings, we won't be misled. Going back to Ephesians 6, after Paul tells us who our enemy really is, he then tells us how to prepare for battle with that enemy. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Then he goes on to describe what the armor of God is. It is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of truth, or um, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Friends, sometimes we will be asked to battle for our faith, and we need to be prepared that these battles can sometimes get messy. Since the time of Acts, people have been ostracized, tried, imprisoned, and even martyred for standing up for biblical truth. The Protestant Reformation in the 1500s was sparked by people who stood up to call out false teaching. Wars have been fought over this. I even have personal experience with it um, when a congregation that I belong to in Ohio decided to leave the denomination that it had been born into because it became aware that it was under the authority of false teaching. And after parting ways with its former, former denomination, which was very painful, my church family found itself embroiled in, in a five-year court battle in which it was sued for all of its earthly possessions. We eventually lost our property, but we were able to rebuild and even to grow because we stood firm on the solid foundation of biblical truth. Now, until now, the American church has been blessed to experience several generations of peaceful existence. However, recent generations have seen the rise of the internet and social media. And with them, it seems that false teachings are becoming more and more prevalent in our culture, creeping in unnoticed, as Jude describes in his letter. As such, we need to be prepared to take up our armor and fight for the truth of the gospel. And to do so, in addition to the armor of God, we need something else very important. We need each other. Which brings me to my third way that we contend for the faith, that is within the body of Christ. We are called to contend for our faith by pursuing peace within the church. The enemy seems to be working very hard to divide and weaken the body of Christ by closing the hearts and minds of believers. Do you feel this? He's been using worldly things like politics and COVID conflicts to divide us and to keep us in isolation. In Matthew 12, 25, Jesus says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Is it any wonder that the enemy is working so hard at causing division? Friends, we need each other. The New Testament testifies to the truth that we are all a small part of something much, much larger. First Peter calls us living stones that are being built into a spiritual house. And First Corinthians calls us literally the body of Christ. Both of these require that the individual members need to be in close relationship with the others in order to be effective. Individual stones don't make much of a house unless they're connected together. And individual body parts aren't much use unless they're connected to the body. 
Jude reinforces this in verse 3 when he refers to the common salvation of the believers. He is not addressing individuals in this letter. So what does it look like to contend for the faith within the community of believers? Well, it looks like striving for unity. It looks like, as a friend of mine recently told me, majoring in the majors and not allowing minor differences to divide us. It looks like making sure that our theology is bigger than our politics or anything else. Jude is not the only one who calls for believers to remain united. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, keep reminding God's people of these things, meaning the gospel. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. And then a few verses later, he says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And then again, in Galatians, Paul urges his brothers and sisters to serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So how do we strive for unity within the community of believers? Well, by showing each other mercy, grace, and love by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, focusing our hearts and mind on who he is and who we are in him. And why is this important? Why should we contend for unity within the community of believers? Because we need each other in order to, to fight the good fight against the dark forces that Paul described in Ephesians 6. But also, when we live in unity with each other, at our very best, we are the salt and light and the city on the hill that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. And together, we can let our light shine before others so that we, they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. So finally, going back to Jude, verse 3, why is it important to us today that we contend for our faith? Listen to what God's Word says. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, but having a form of godliness but denying its power. Does that sound like our current cultural moment? Well, take comfort, friends, in knowing that this was written nearly 2,000 years ago to urge another believer to contend for his faith. This comes from Paul's second letter to Timothy. And as challenging as our current cultural moment is, know that there truly is nothing new under the sun. While all believers in all generations are called to contend for the true faith, it doesn't always mean fighting to defend the gospel. Sometimes contending for the faith can mean simply sharing the gospel or living it out well with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Will you pray with me? 
Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the wisdom that you poured out for us through servants like Jude. We are so grateful to have your word as a firm foundation to stand on amidst the noise and confusion of our world. Jesus, I trust that by your spirit, you will help your beloved followers to always know your truth. Please tune our, our ears to hear you when you speak to us. Help us to share the gospel with those who don't yet know you and give us the courage to defend the gospel when we encounter the false teachers in our lives. I pray for your blessings on all of my sisters who are joining me in this study today. Please let them feel your presence with them as they gather to, dis to discuss Jude's teaching and help them to encourage and strengthen each other as a community of believers. And Lord, I pray that as your church, you will help us to be a mirror that reflects your glory into the darkness of our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.